interesting topic that we'll dive into the topic we're going to look at today, which is the topic of zealotry, which is an interesting topic for me, especially because it seems to touch on both religious and political themes that seem so prominent for us in the uh, in the world today. Part of what's fascinating about the idea of zealotry is that when we often associate it with a religious context, it's very easy to start seeing how the idea also manifests in other contexts, particularly political contexts as, as well. And as such, I think because we live in times of instability and also times of extremism, like this question of zealotry, um, I think becomes a very, very, very uh, important one. Um, both, you know, again, where I live in Israel and certainly in America as well, right, political discourse always seems to be at the, um, the edge of violence. And there's the sense that, you know, People have to step up and do what's right, no matter what the cost, because the, the moment demands it, right? And, and, and that kind of thinking is often, as we'll see, very much at the, uh, at the heart of zealotry, right? On, on, on a more basic religious level, I, I don't just live in Israel, I also live in Jerusalem, you know, J Jerusalem, the holy city. Um, and Jerusalem is a holy city, uh, but it also has basically a 2,000 year plus reputation for also being a city of zealots. Right. If you want to find a religious zealot in the world, right, this city, you know, where I live is is is, is usually a, a good place, right? The old city, the Iratika, um, has historically been full of them, of all different kinds, kinds of uh, religions, right? So it, it, for me, at least, also living where I live, right, the idea, the image of a, a religious zealot, and often a political zealot as well, is not something just that's rooted in history, it's rooted very much in the, in the, uh, the contemporary reality. Now, for me, part of the reason, again, that I wanted to get into this was, was again, the, the contemporary uh, relevance of it. Um, but Rav Shmuley and I share a, a teacher from uh, Yeshiva, and he, he happens to come from a Hasidic background that is famous for its zealotry. Um, and he happened to quote on Facebook, this was a couple of years ago, and it, it, I, when I read this, it really hit me. Um, he said as follows, he says, he says, true when done wrong, uh, zealotry can be hurtful, damaging, and destructive. But that doesn't mean that we should completely dismiss it as a virtue. Done appropriately at the right time, with the right amount, while exhibiting extreme caution, zealous religious passion can be spiritually beneficial. Right? And what he was trying to get at, and, and well, I'm going to sort of challenge this because I think um, there's what here to be challenged, but what he was trying to get at is there's something good about zealotry, right? as long as it's not too much as long as it's done carefully. But if, if done right, with the right amount and the right sort of, you know, focus, the right kavanah, right, some good good consequences can uh, come out of it. And, and, and in general, he likes to make the argument that, you know, modern Jews, liberal Jews are too uncomfortable with zealotry, right? They should be trying to in integrate more zealotry into their, into their, into their lives because there's good things that come from that. So I think this notion of zealotry being like a good thing, but we don't want too much of it, but we need something of it, right? Like, I want to question that because I think fundamentally what we have to keep in mind, and I think this is something the Jewish texts make us deeply aware of, um, is that whatever we think of zealotry, um, it's something radical, right? It's something which challenges the normal way of doing things. It's something which challenges the system and even potentially challenges authority uh, and the basic norms through which we live our lives, right? So zealotry is not just simply like, a good thing, but just not too, we don't want too much of it. There, there's something I want to argue much more uh, radical that is potentially, um, you know, going on here. And what we're going to do in the, in the, in, in the Shi'or is basically we're going to explore probably the most fundamental and important narrative around zealotry that exists in the Torah, and that is the, the narrative of Pinchas um, and the act of zealotry that he takes up. What is fascinating is that when we look closely at the narrative, we see how his actions are paradigmatic of the way zealotry is conceived throughout the Torah, um, throughout Jewish thought even today, uh, in ways that become very, very important for us to try to understand. And we're not just gonna look at Jewish texts or at least traditional Jewish texts. I also wanna try to bring a, a psychoanalytic lens to this question, because I think psychoanalysis has something very important to teach us about what is it exactly that fuels the zealot um, and what might be so uh, you know, problematic uh, about that. So even before I get into the, 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 the text with Pinchas, I, I want to just pose the question of what exactly does it mean to be a zealot, right? It's not, you know, it's a term we use. It's a term that it's sort of like, you know, the classic, you know, um, Supreme Court uh, statement about pornography. It's like, I know it when I see it, right? Everybody sort of has an image in their mind of what the zealot is. 
but it's not exactly so clear how we might define what makes the zealot a zealot, what makes zealotry zealotry. So I want to just begin by posing a few definitions, and then we'll we'll continue to play off them throughout this year. So one possibility about the zealot, um, and this is what we see maybe in some ways most clearly in Pinchas's story, is the zealot is somebody who takes the law into their own hands, right? The zealot is the one who sees that there's a problem, who sees that there's something that needs to happen, something that the law demands, something, let's say, the Torah demands, but it's not being done, right? So in the absence of anybody doing what needs to be done, right, the zealot steps up and says, okay, I'm going to do it, right? Like, I'm not the judge, I'm not the king, I'm not the prophet, I'm not the rabbi, but somebody has to act, right, for God. So I'm going to take the law into my own hands. Right, that's one possibility of what the zealot is, you know, from a religious perspective. And again, you can see how that translates into sort of a modern secular narrative as well, right? There's a moment of crisis, there's a moment of, of, of which there's a, a sense of things becoming degraded, right? Um, there's a moment in which the political system isn't doing what it's supposed to, right? Somebody has to step up and take the law into their own hands, right? The law demands it, right? It's not even that they're acting outside the law. Right, the law says you're supposed to do X, Y, Z. There shouldn't be corruption. There shouldn't be abuse of power. But if those in authority aren't going to do it, like somebody else has to step up and 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 make sure that it can and should and should happen. So that's one possibility of zealotry taking the law into one's own hands. And another way to think about zealotry is this idea of of going beyond the law. Right, the law says X, but we know that X isn't good enough. Right, we have to go beyond the law to make sure that what needs to happen is actually able to, to happen, right? And if, if we think about this from, again, from like a social justice perspective, I mean, this is one that we, we very clearly understand, right? There are many places in which the law falls far short of what we think the basic, basic ethical standard, ethical mandate needs to be in a particular situation, right? So in those kinds of, uh, you know, contexts, right, it's our responsibility to go beyond the letter of the law. But of course, going beyond the letter of the law, even if we think it's right, Right in the particular context in which that act takes place, uh, that act is often seen as a transgression because if you go beyond the letter of the law, that means you're acting outside the law. Right, you're doing what the law doesn't give you permission to do. Right, and that's what gives again the act of zealotry and successiveness. Right, when a when a social justice protester, right, like you know, handcuffs themselves to you know um, you know police cars to prevent some sort of you know action that they see as an abuse of power. Right, like the law doesn't give them permission to do that act of, you know, nonviolent resistance. Let's say, um, but it's exactly, you know, justice and 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 this need to go beyond sort of the the letter of the law as it is understood in this particular political place and time. Right, that demands the zealot to um, to act. Um, but again, from the, in the eyes of the police, right, the conscientious objector, the protester who chains themselves, right? That's an illegal act. That's a transgression. They should be locked up and put into put into jail. And they police in that those contexts often look, I assume, at protesters as if they're crazy zealots for acting outside the law in that kind of way. Um, the third definition I'll, I'll put out there, and this is, I think, is in some ways the most common one, one that we probably most intuitively think about when it comes to zealotry, is the zealot is the one who is willing to use violence to impose their beliefs on others. Right. And I think that's, like I said, something we intuitively get. Right. The zealot is one who doesn't just like believe something to be true. Right. But it's that's not enough for them. Right. They have a fundamental need to make sure that other people accept that 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 truth as true. And they have a willingness to use violence in order to be able to to enforce that. And again, we see that also today, again, in political and religious discourse. I live in a city where there are many, many rabbis um, and a country where people feel that their religious beliefs are so important, it's not just enough that they be allowed to live them, right? It is of, of, of even greater importance that it be, they be imposed on others and the use of violence is completely legitimate for that, right? And um, I think for a lot of us who have a basic sense of human rights and a basic sense of human beings being created in the image of God, right? The idea that we're gonna use violence to impose religious beliefs on others um, is deeply um, concerning to us, and we might even think it's evil. I certainly do most of the time. Um, but that's what the zealot thinks, right? If if it's from God, if the truth is from God, how could we be willing to compromise on it, right? Everybody needs to live by it, um, and that means we're going to have to use force. We're going to have to use violence at times. We don't want to, but if that's what God's law requires, if that's what God's you know word, God's will demands, then that's just the way it's going to have to be. Right. So these are just some of the you know, possible ways of thinking about zealotry. And again, they kind of blend into each other. I'm not saying they're truly defined, distinguished categories. 
But I want us to have that in the background as we're looking at these uh, as these texts, because in every moment when you're thinking of dealing with somebody who thinks is acting zealously um, for good and for bad, right? They're operating, I would say, within one of these different um, you know paradigms here. So as I said, the the major focus that we need to look at is the story of Pinchas, right? This appears towards the end of uh, Sefer Bamidbar, uh, the fourth book of the uh, of the Torah. Um, it's really a short narrative at the end. It's, I think it's 15 verses or so. So it, it, I kind of personally, I kind of like sometimes short narratives in the Torah because they give you sort of their totality in a graspable form, right? It's all there, right? And as most stories in the Torah, and this one is no exception, even though it's short, right? There is just so much in there, right? Like every every verse, every word, every letter has something to teach about this sort of complex narrative that it's that it's giving over. In the context of the Torah, right, this narrative comes after the, you know, essentially the Jewish people have been, uh, uh, you know, marching through the desert, traveling in the desert, right? They've already been there for basically, you know, uh, you know, uh, 40 years. Um, and they're finally, you know, essentially on their way to go to the promised land, right? The generation that left Egypt, they've died in the desert, right? It is their children now who are essentially making their way to the promised land, which means it's supposed to be a new generation, a fresh start, a better chance at the covenant that God is, has made with the Jewish people. But even here, we see that the Jewish people are not quite, you know, rising to the, um, you know, to the challenge. Um, and what happens where things start to break apart at the very beginning of the narrative um, is when the Jewish people start, the men, Jewish men, start having relations with Midianite women. Um, and as part of those sexual relations, they start worshiping uh, Balpur, they start worshiping the Midianite gods. Right? We have this, this moment in which there's almost the sense of which the covenant between God and the Jewish people is rupturing through this dual act of uh, sex with the, with, with the idol worshipers and worshiping their idols. Right? There's a sense in which this story, uh, we don't have time to fully develop, but there's a sense in which this story parallels very much the incidents of the golden calf, right? At the moment when things are supposed to be going good and we're supposed to be moving forward, right? Like there's a moment of rupture in which it kind of feels like maybe everything could become uh, undone, right? And that's sort of the setup. And the question is what happens uh, next? Um, so when we look here again, Midbar chapter 25, we're told that um, Israel was staying in Shittim. That's the place that they are. They profane themselves by, by being with the Moabite women. Um, and the Moabite women essentially seduce the Jewish men to worship uh, their gods, to offer sacrifice to their idols. And the men do this, right? They're, they're, they're happy to be seduced, one might say, or one might assume. Um, and again, through part of this process, the Jewish men are become attached to Balpur. They become attached to this sort of whole sexual idolatrous practices that are going on. And as one might expect, just as we saw in the case of the golden calf, when there's the rupture of the covenant, when the Jewish people betray their, their, their connection to God, their loyalty to God, well, how, how is God going to respond? Well, God's going to respond like any spurned, you know, spouse, right, who's partner is basically betraying them with another person, right? And they're going to get angry. Uh, and that's exactly what we see here. It says, and the Lord was incensed uh, with Israel. God's getting very, very angry. Um, and God says to Moses, verse four, uh, he gives Moses very specific instructions. Take all the ringleaders and have them publicly impaled before the Lord so that the Lord's wrath may turn away from Israel. God gives Moshe very clear instructions. Take the ringleaders who are the ones most responsible. He doesn't say kill everybody uh, who's been doing this, but take the ringleaders and kill them and make a public show of it, right? Make, send the message, right? This was wrong. This was a total violation, right? The ringleaders need to be killed um, and they need to be, this done needs to be done in a public way so that we can, we can solve this problem. Um, and that's the instruction that Moshe passes down to basically the, you know, the, the, the people who assist him in running the, uh, the nation. Uh, it says here in verse five, so Moshe turns to the Israelite officials, each of you slay those of his men who attach themselves to Balpur, right? You guys got to go out and find uh, those that were doing this. You have to kill them. Um, and then we're told, so the instructions have been, there's crisis, right? But God, the authority has given the proper instructions how we're going to rectify this. Moshe, his servant, his emissary, has passed on these directions to the people so they can implement them so things can be fixed. And then we're told what happens next year in verse six. And this is really the transition point that is the trigger for Pinchas's actions. It says here in verse six, just then one of the Israelites came and brought a Midianite woman over to his companions. 
in the sight of Moses and the whole Israelite community. So what's happening in the midst of Moses, God giving the instructions, Moses giving the instructions, we're going to find the ringleaders, we're going to kill them, we're going to make a show of it. There's one Jew, Jewish man, who comes in front of everybody um, with his Midianite woman uh, partner. Um, uh, and again, it doesn't say what they're doing at first. They all just sort of come together um, in front of not just you know Moses, but ultimately all of the people. Uh, and we're told here, that they are weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting, right? So again, the Israelite man uh, brings uh, one of his, you know, his women um, before everybody, uh, and they are crying as they see this taking place in the Ohel Moed, at the, at the tent of meeting, right? And again, we have to keep in mind here, and it's, I would say, you know, explicit, implicit, so to speak, in the text is the assumption he's here, is he's not just like bringing his non-Jewish girlfriend around, but that they're engaged in the act of relations itself, right? That there's something profoundly provocative and transgressive about what they're doing, right? If we're, if we're gonna use sort of the modern, uh, you know, metaphor here, it's like if you're in shul on Yom Kippur, or on Shabbos, right? And one of your shul members is coming and bringing, you know, their, you know, whatever, basically doing a transgressive act with another person in a way that is problematic, like on the bima, right? Like in front of everybody, right? And what's important for us to keep in mind here is when this moment of transgression of rupture really takes place in front of everybody, in front of the leader, what is their response, right? What is it that most and everybody does when they see this happen? Well, we're only told one thing, and that is that they cry, right? Which again is striking, right? We might imagine if we think of Moshe of the golden calf, like what does Moshe of the golden calf do when he sees the people are sinning, right? He smashes the tablets. He says, Mila Shemelai, or he gathers people together to go after them. Here, that's not the Moshe that we see, right? Here we see a Moshe who is basically passive, crying, helpless, powerless. Um, and that is the moment when Pinchas chooses to act, right? It says here in verse seven, when Pinchas, son of Elazar, son of Aaron, the, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly. And taking a spear in his hand, he followed the Israelite into the chamber and stabbed both of them, the Israelites and the woman through the belly. Then the plague against the Israelites was checked. Right. So Pinchas, in this moment, is where he takes the spear and he does what he feels must be done. Right. He kills the Jewish man and the Midianite woman. He stabs them again. It's very visceral here. Right. And the Torah is very clear about that. He takes the spear and he stabs both of them right through the belly right, through the, the center of their bodies. And then we're suddenly told about this plague that we didn't know about before, but whatever that was is stopped, right? Presumably the plague is, is an expression of God's wrath. And then we're told those who died in the plague numbered 24,000, uh, right? So Pinchas engages in this zealous act of violence in this moment of profound transgression. And what's very clear from the Torah's perspective is that there are some very positive outcomes that, that occur because of this, right? All the Jews that have been dying, right? Well, the death of the plague of God's anger comes to an end with this, right? And as we continue with the verses, this is more or less where the Parsha ends, Parsha to, uh, uh, you know, Balak, but then we go on to Pinchas, um, and it's very clear um, that the um, um, that God seemingly looks at this as a good thing, right? So we're told here uh, in verse 10, God spoke to Moshe saying, um, again, so we sort of like are waiting for a moment. So what's going to be the response to this? It, it appears it's a good thing. God's wrath stops, the plague stops, but what's really going to be the final word here? Uh, it says here in verse 10, the Lord spoke to Moshe saying, Pinchas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest has turned back uh, my wrath from the Israelites by displaying among them his passion for me so that I did not wipe out the Israelite people in my passion. Say, therefore, I grant him my pact of friendship, Briti Shalom, right? That God is saying, you know what? Pinchas did a good thing. And not only did he do a good thing by staying my wrath through this act of zealotry, I'm going to reward Pinchas. I'm going to give him the Brit, this covenant, this pact of friendship. Um, and he goes on to say, God, uh, it still sh it shall be for him and his descendants after him a pact of priesthood for all time, because he took impassioned action for his for his God, thus making expiation for the Israelites. Right, this gift that God gives to Pinchas is not just for Pinchas; it's for Pinchas's descendants. That's how important it was, because what Pinchas did actually, you know, prevented the Jewish people from being destroyed. And then we're told who's the name of the of the Israelite man and the Midianite woman who did this, uh, Zimri. Uh, who is from the tribe of Shimon, and Cosby, who is the Midianite woman, who is the uh, the daughter of uh, of Tzor. 
So what's important to keep in mind as we look at this narrative um, is that it does seem to see this act of zealotry, this violent act of zealotry as being a good thing, right? That there are moments when people are sinning, people are doing horrible things. And you know what? You got to be willing to step up and do what's necessary sometimes, right? Like you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs and you can't save a, a country, a society, a community without, you know, killing people if it's necessary, right? And that's essentially seemingly what the message is here, right? If, if you read this story and you're asking, is the Torah pro-zealotry or against zealotry? I, it's it's kind of hard. I mean, there's some subtle points we'll look at, but the straightforward reading of this is kind of like, when it's necessary, this is what you got to do. This is what God wants. And not only that, it can be, you know, basically bring salvation. It can cause, you know, very good things to happen for um, the Jewish people. So when, when we see this, we do see that the Torah seems to say zealotry may be a good thing. It may be a necessary thing. Now, what's striking to us, again, as, as modern people, but it was certainly striking to the rabbis of the Talmud as well, is that we all kind of know that acts of violence uh, perpetrated in the name of God rarely have sort of the positive outcomes that the people who engage in them think that they should, right? Like most often, what are the consequences of, of religious acts of violence, right? Most often the consequences are more violence, right? If people think that an act of zealotry is going to bring others to faith, right? Violent act of zealotry, right? There are other ways you conceive of zealotry, but a violent act of zealotry, killing somebody, um, I think most of us would say, that is much more likely to profane God's name than it is to sanctify God's name. That's just our assumption with it. I don't know about you. Anybody here can think of a great act of religious zealotry that was killing somebody in the last century or two that was like, uh, you know, who strengthened their faith. Uh, I, I would have a hard time coming up with, a, with, with, with an example. Um, what I want to do now is we turn to Chazal and we're going to turn to some, uh, again, like I said, psychoanalysis and Jewish thought. Um, I want us to unpack like what's really going on here. Right? Is this such a wonderful thing? You know, should we all try to become zealous when the moment requires it, um, or is there something more going on? And what is it that really is bringing zealotry to the fore in the, in the first place? Because one of the things we have to keep in mind: if we live in a moment where zealotry feels more palpable, we have to ask ourselves why is that the case? And I think this story, when you read between the lines, actually helps explain uh, why that might be the uh, be the case. So, first, I want to look at sort of the rabbinic ambivalence around Pinchas's actions here of zealotry. Um, the rabbis, again, they can't say it's like uh, totally prohibited because the Torah seems to go out of its way to make clear that God said this was, you know, a good thing and necessary. But at the same time, the rabbis themselves are deeply concerned about what kind of precedent this might, might represent. And they start reading, I think, some very, very important things into this. Um, there are, in some ways, I would say shot, but not necessarily highlighted in the in the biblical verses themselves. So the first thing I will note here um, is that when you look at the Mishnah Masechet Sanhedrin, there is an explicit Mishnah that says, when it comes to three particular sins, if you see somebody doing them, you can kill them, right? Doesn't say this about all the sins, not even necessarily the sins that we might think, right? But there are three particular sins that if you see somebody engaging with them, you can kill them, right? You don't have to wait for them to come to court and be judged by a bait in and have a proper death penalty be implemented, right? In the moment when you see the sin, right? Like you can kill them. Uh, I'll note that the mission itself is already ambiguous whether or not you should kill them, but it does make very clear that you can kill them, right? And, and that's, you know, important just to understand here. It says with regard to, and here are the three sins, one who steals a kasva, which is one of those sacred uh, vessels from the temple that was used in the temple, or one who curses with a sorcerer, right? Or one who engages in intercourse with an Aramean woman, right? In these three instances, if you see these things happening, like in the middle of seeing it happening, zealots strike them and kill them. It can strike him and kill them, right? You see this happening, you could do like Pinchas does. You can pick up your spear and you can kill them. Now, again, we're not going to have time to unpack the other two, but clearly these are transgressive acts, idolatrous acts, sexual acts, right? These are the sort of like the the, um, the, the area, the partial, so to speak, that we're, we're dealing with. They all involve some sort of rupture, fundamental rupture of the covenant, uh, the covenant relationship between God and the, uh, and the Jewish people. When we turn to the Talmud in his discussion of this particular Mishnah, 
as I said, we're going to see a lot of ambivalence. Already the Mishnah is ambivalent by not saying you should do this, just saying that it, it can happen, right? The, the Gemara is already going to start uh, adding very, very, very important caveats for how we for how we look at this. So the Gemara here in Masechah Sanhedrin, it says, Rav Chista said, concerning one who comes to consult with the court, when he sees a Jewish man engaging in intercourse with a Gentile woman, the court does not instruct him that it is permitted to kill the transgressor. Right. It was also stated that Rabbi Barbarhana said that Rabbi Yochanan said concerning one who comes to consult with the court, the court does not instruct him that he is permitted to kill the Jewish man engaged in intercourse with the Gentile woman. So the first point Chazal make here, and this is a very very important one, it sounds counterintuitive. It almost even we'll see it almost sounds like paradoxical, is that if you are a rabbi or you're a baked in, and somebody comes up to you and asks, I see, you know, Shloimi you know, engaged in this great transgression, right? This public transgression of having sex with an idolater, right? Like, can I go kill him right now, right? The Gemara is saying, no, you just, you don't, you don't answer, right? The rabbi doesn't answer, the Beit Din doesn't answer. Um, and the reason this is a little bit paradoxical is because first off, it's written in the Mishnah, so you might say it's already there, like, you know, uh, uh, it's also paradoxical because again, like the Torah seems to say this can and should happen. And so, it's very strange that we would say that if this is the law that it can be done, why is it that the rabbi or the baitin isn't going to answer when somebody comes to ask the question, right? So we're going to leave that open for the moment. Like, where is this idea coming from? Um, not so clear. The second caveat that Chazal, um, um, uh, well, well I, let me say it a little differently. But the very least what we can take away from this is that if you're a rabbi or a baitin, right? Like you don't go teaching people to become zealots, right? That in some ways is a violation of the halacha. Because if somebody asks you, you're not supposed to answer, which means you're also not supposed to like be running around teaching this right at a certain level. So even though it's like on the books, it's not something that we publicize. It's not something that we say you have permission uh, to do this. That's the first caveat. Um, the uh, the second caveat here, it says as follows, moreover, if Zimri, son of Salu, had separated himself from the woman and only then Pinchas killed him, Pinchas would have been executed for killing him. Because it's permitted for zealots to kill only while the transgressor is engaged in the act of intercourse, right? And the same is going to say here is true. Zimri, furthermore, if Zimri would have turned and killed Pinchas in self-defense, he would not have been executed for killing him, as Pinchas was a pursuer. One is allowed to kill a pursuer in self-defense, provided the pursued is not liable to be executed by the court. So what, what the Gemara is saying here, what the rabbis are saying here, is that Pinchas was permitted to kill them in this act of zealotry, but only while they were in the midst of the sin, right? The moment they separated from the sin, right? Pinchas was not, didn't have any right to use any kind of violence against them. And even more so, if he had attempted to use violence against them once they had separated, right? Um, Zimri would have been completely within his rights to kill Pinchas. Because at that point, Pinchas would be coming at them as like a rodef, like as, a, as like a murderer. Right and, and 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 Zimri would be well within his rights to defend himself. Right under those kinds of uh, conditions, which means that the act of zealotry the rabbis are saying is only essentially possible in the moments of the sin. But again, as we all know, especially when it comes to the sexual act, right? Like that's a pretty small window, like pretty tiny window. It's not like you got hours to go after them. Right? There's a moment, and if you miss, if you get the moment wrong, you're a murderer. Which I think is a very fundamental point here that we again sort of get. Right, the line between being a zealot who somehow creates positive outcomes and the zealot who profanes God's name and engages in murder, right? It's a line that's so thin, right? It's essentially blurry and may not even quite be there. That's essentially what the rabbis are saying. If you get it right, like maybe you're a hero, but it is equally possible you will get it really, really, really wrong. And, and, and one of the ways that the rabbis also get at this is in the same Gemara, they point out that when Pinchas killed Zimri and Cosby, it was as if uh, six miracles happened at that moment, right? There were six different miracles that basically had to happen for, 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 for Pinchas to do this right, right? Because it could have just as easily gone wrong, gone really, really, really wrong, which again, the rabbis are, are kind of making their ambivalence very clear here. We're not going to tell you if and when and how you should be a zealot. And the, the window through which zealotry can be a positive thing is extraordinarily small. And it's far more likely that it's going to have destructive co destructive consequences, right? That's the basic, you know, mahalach, the basic um, uh, outline that's being, you know, presented to us by the Gemara in relation to this uh, to this uh, 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 biblical narrative, right? So we still have to ask ourselves, 
like, where is this notion of zealotry coming from? Like, what is it that is motivating Pinafos to do what he does? Because I think we have to get at this, we have to dig at this a bit more in order to be able to really understand the dynamics that are going on here, right? On a certain level, I agree with Chazal completely, with the rabbis completely, right? Like, even if there's a place for zealotry, right? It's an extraordinarily narrow window where that can and should take place. And 99% of the time, it's going to be horrific, what, what, you know, the attempt at it. But nevertheless, you have to understand, like, where does this legitimacy, for, legitimacy or the desire uh, for zealotry come from? And, and to understand this, we're going to look at um, the Pinchas narrative, we're going to look at some broader biblical narratives, and we're going to have to bring in uh, a bit of uh, Sigmund Freud here as well to understand what is it that's making the zealot do what they do. So remember if I noticed, if you remember before when I was describing the narrative, the Pinchas narrative, there was the particular moment I was trying to highlight that captures when Pinchas really is the, you know, rises up, right? It has to do something, right? And it was the sixth verse here. I'll just read it. I only brought the Hebrew, but it says as follows. Right? Zimri, the Jewish man, uh, basically appears before Moshe and the entire Jewish people with his, you know, Midianite uh, partner in, in presumably the sexual act. And how do they respond? Uh, and they are all crying, right? Not just the Jewish people, presumably, but Moshe is crying as well, right? So even though God has given instructions and Moshe has given instructions, when the transgression is thrown in their face, Moshe does not like act like he did at Harsinai with the golden calf. Moshe cries, right? And again, I think we all know this, you know, when the authority figure who we're looking to, to hold things together, to put down justice when necessary, when they don't act, when they appear powerless, right? There's something very scary about that. I think everybody, uh, I'm going to be gendered for a moment here. I think every uh, boy remembers the first time they see their father cry. Um, because there's something about that that is just like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, right? There's something really almost, uh, I would say, I mean, again, maybe not in the world we live in today, but it used to be almost something traumatic about that, to see that, because that's not the way dad is ever supposed to be. Dad's supposed to be powerful. Dad's supposed to be strong. Dad's supposed to be stoic, right? To cry is, again, associated, unfortunately, with the, the gendered feminine, right? Is to be passive, is to be, is to be powerless. This isn't the Moshe we're supposed to see, right? And to see Moshe cry at this moment is a moment, again, a profound rupture a moment where it kind of feels like maybe everything is falling apart, right? If, if, if Abba, the father, can't do what they're supposed to do in this moment, then all hell is potentially going to break loose. And it's when the father appears as potentially weak or absent, right? That is the moment when the sons have to step up and do what is necessary in the father's place. And the reason I'm speaking in those terms is, again, there's a Freudian dimension that which I'll unpack, but this is very clear over and over again through, in, without, throughout the Torah itself. Right, there's a couple, I'll highlight two very clear examples of this. Um, the first one is in Bereshit, the book of Genesis, when Yaakov, Jacob's daughter, um, uh, uh, Tamar is raped by Shem. Um, when Yaakov discovers the rape, we're, we're told as follows here. So this is in verse five of, from chapter 34 of, of Genesis. Um, Jacob heard that he, Shem, had defiled his daughter Dina, but since his sons are in the field with his cattle, Jacob kept silent until they came home. So when Jacob, who's the patriarch, the father, hears that his daughter has been, you know, raped, oppressed, defiled, right? What we want the father to do under those conditions is to take his sword and go after the people who did this horrible thing, right? That's the father's job, right? To, again, maintain and install justice, right? To make sure things are fair, to make sure that uh, the family is protected, particularly the daughters, the women who are seen as being, again, vulnerable, less powerful, right? It's his job to make sure they're safe and secure. And when the father's not doing that, when authority is beginning to fail or no longer seen as this all-powerful authority, right? That's when the sons have to step in the father's place. And again, when the sons step in, they always, you know, they have to do so in a zealous way, right? They have to, in some ways, I would even say, cover up for the fact that the father is being powerless, right? The son has to step in and say, no, 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 this is what we do. We gotta go this far. We gotta rectify the problem in many ways to cover up for their, for their own father's powerlessness. That's exactly what happens in the story here, right? We're told is that Shem comes to Yaakov and starts wanting to negotiate basically to have um, Tamar be his, um, uh, sorry, I keep saying Tamar, Dina. I don't know why I got, to, I got Tamar stuck in my head because that's 
coming connected story, but not the same one. Dina, this is the rape of Dina, right? So Shem comes to Yaakov um, and basically wants to negotiate that Dina should be his, um, his bride. And what happens is, is that Yaakov's other sons, Dina's brothers, basically sort of trick Shem and all of his people to circumcise themselves. And this is a way of sort of making an agreement between them, between Yaakov's family and the people of Shem, so that their children will be able to marry each other and it'll be sort of a permanent relationship. But really, the plan is to get Shem and his people to circumcise themselves so Shimon and Levi can take up arms and slaughter them. And that's exactly what happens in, 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 in the narrative, right? We're told here again in, in verse seven, uh, meanwhile, Jacob's sons, having heard the news, came in from the field. The men were distressed um, and were very angry because he had committed an outrage in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing not to be done, right? The sons are angry because the father, Yaakov, was not able to step in and protect. They come up with the whole plan, and the plan ends with Shimon and Levi just laying waste, um, killing thousands of, of Shem and, uh, of, and, 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 uh, and, and his people. Um, now, you might say, well, again, what exactly does it have to do with zealotry? But later on in, in Bereshit, when Yaakov, at the end of Bereshit, when Yaakov rebukes Shimon and Levi, um, both Chazal and the Mephorashim are very careful to link this also to the story of, of Pinchas, right? That they see Shimon and Levi's act of zealotry as being very much aligned with Pinchas's act of zealotry, right? That they're essentially doing the same kind of thing. When Yaakov is powerless, when the father is powerless, Shimon and Levi have to step up, step up to protect their, you know, their sister. When Moshe is powerless, not able to do what God wants, God needs, right? Pinchas has to step up violently and protect the, uh, protect the Jewish people. Right? When the father who represents power and authority isn't doing their thing, the sons have to step up and, and often uh, you know, violently. Um, that's the basic narrative. The other example is I'll just note, um, also occurs in later on in Tanakh and, and Sefer Shmuel with uh, David, right? David has a whole host of children. Um, two of them are uh, unknown and uh, uh, um, uh, Tamar is also what I was thinking of before. Um, Amnon rapes his sister, Tamar, and Avshalom, who's their other brother, when he sees that David does nothing, David knows the rape happens, but does nothing, um, Avshalom is beyond upset, and Avshalom not only ends up killing Amnon, but ends up rebelling against his father, right? When the father is weak and not doing what they're supposed to do to protect um, the people who need to be protected, right, then the son is going to, uh, you know, rise up and essentially... Um, you know, act, uh, you know, violently. And even within Chazal, I won't read it. They, they see that within the Pinchas narrative. They see that when, when Zimri is bringing the Midianite women before the people, he's actually challenging Moshe's authority. Uh, the Midrash actually goes on to say that what he's doing is he says to Moshe, you're going to kill me? Look at you, Moshe. Look who your wife is. And if you know the narrative of, of the Torah, who's Moshe's wife? Sipora. She's a Midianite woman. Right. So essentially what Zimri is doing is challenging the very legitimacy of Moshe's authority to carry out God's judgment. Right. And Moshe in that moment is essentially powerless. Um, and that's why Pinchas has to step up. And there's this line in the Gemara here where it says, you know, basically, um, when there's a profanation of God's name, we don't give honor to the rabbi, so to speak. We just do what's necessary, right? If the father's not able to stand up and do what they're supposed to do, then the sons have to get up and, and just, you know, and just act. Now, part of this whole way of thinking about zealotry, uh, again, has to come from this position of understanding the way that power and authority is, is deeply uh, tied to notions of patriarchy, right? It's the father who is the authority, and when the father is weak, the sons act zealously. Now, again, I know this sounds kind of, again, overly gendered from our modern perspective, but I will just note, right, Rosh Hashanah is coming, Yom Kippur is coming. Uh, one of the most famous prayers of those days is a prayer called Avinu Malkeinu, right? Our father, our king, right? You know, Judaism has always been, in many ways, deeply patriarchal in the way that it conceives of authority. That authority is often masculine, authority is often associated with the father. That's why God's not only our king, God is our father. Now, Judaism also undermines patriarchy. It undermines gender binaries in all sorts of ways, but there is a patriarchal dimension that it's hard to fundamentally um, uh, escape from. And the reason that is relevant to us when we think about the modern condition is that the fundamental radical transformation of modernity is when the father stops being the father. Well, what do I mean by this? Is when, again, men stop being the embodiments of power and authority simply because they are men, right? It used to be, in fact, I once heard a Rosh Yeshiva who's 
um, much more to the right. He, you know, it used to be as, as the, the sitcom was in the 50s, father knows best. And this Rosh Hashiva, I know I'm not a, always a huge fan of, he, he likes to say, I wish we could go back to the 1950s when it was father knows best, right? That's sort of the sort of patriarchal notions of authority. The father is the one who runs the family. The father was the one who knows how things should be done, right? One of the radical transformations of modernity is we no longer think father knows best, right? We think it's, you know, hopefully the parents can kind of figure it out together in some sort of uh, way, but it's certainly not father knows best, right? That if authority is male, right? A large part of modernity is about sort of killing the father in the Freudian edible sense, right? We have to get rid of the fathers so there can be equal authority for everybody, right? That there's not one person at the top of the pyramid who essentially is, is embodying authority, right? But the challenge is, is when you get rid of authority as being located in a particular place of person, right? When you get rid of that being able to be the structure that holds society together, right? It is deeply destabilizing. Remember, as I keep saying, when the father is weak or the father is, in is absent, that's the moment when zealotry starts to emerge. And that's the reason I think why we start seeing zealotry as such a temptation within political and religious life in the modern world, All right? So this is a point uh, made by a um, very interesting uh, psychoanalytic thinker, Richard Boothby, where he basically says as follows. He notes that religious zealotry and political zealotry in the modern world look really, really similar. And they are both fundamental responses to the loss of the father, the weakness of the father. And that what zealotry is always trying to do is basically the sons acting in an extreme way to give off the impression like the father's still the father. God's still in charge. Oh, you know, I'm gonna show you how God's still in charge, you silly modern liberals. I'm gonna act in the most extreme way possible. Then nobody can question that God the father is really in charge. So here's, um, here's what he says here. I'll just read the second paragraph. He says, if we look around the world, it is not difficult to see enormously larger numbers of men, indeed whole populations of them who find themselves threatened by the disruptions and dislocations of modernity and react by sandbagging themselves in an anxious and aggressive reassertion of masculinity. Right? What we think of as toxic masculinity is not a pre-modern phenomenon. It's a response to the loss of masculinity being this privileged position of authority. And then men suddenly don't know what to do with themselves. And again, it's not just a, a gender problem. It's a societal problem. Because when, when power and authority is conceived of as masculine, right, and you lo no longer say men are the ones in charge, then you have to ask yourself, who's in charge? Right? There has to be somebody in charge. And suddenly that becomes like as if the ground underneath you have simply you know, split open and you're standing over the abyss. Um, he says, the most visible evidence of this trend is to be found in the dark brothers of modern democratic enlightenment, fascism and religious fundamentalism. And he calls them brothers because both fascism and religious fundamentalism are the, are the zealots who need to act in the place when the father is weak or not there, right? Modernity is about pushing God away. We don't turn to God to determine how to run society, right? This is separation of church and state, right? God is sort of out of the picture. We kill the father. We keep the father out of it so that there can be equality, so there can be freedom. Um, but then that leaves us again with a gaping hole there um, that is profoundly disconcerting. Yeah, he says the emergence of these two distinctly modern phenomena provide an indirect proof of the profoundly anti-patriarchal character of the key movements of modernity, meaning modern modernity is all about, again, sort of getting rid of God as the father, the father who knows best. Fascism and fundamentalism are essentially reactions to the modern erosion of traditionally patriarchal culture. They each represent defensive countermeasures, one secular and overtly militarist, the other theocratic and more covertly militarist. Both are essentially defensive rearguard actions that seek to mitigate the decline of patriarchal influence by advancing an override caricature of paternal power. Meaning when the father is weak or absence, the sons step up and they have to act violently, sort of make sure everybody thinks everything's still really okay. Right, that is what, what modern zealotry is. That's the kind of zealotry that Pinchas is doing. That's the kind of zealotry that Shimon and Levi are doing. But there's always going to be a temptation to that because the idea that it, there may not be anybody in charge, nobody to sort of make sure things are stable and secure is not something that we're willing to, to be able to, um, uh, uh, to tolerate. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I wanna to try to just um, um, you know, make some, some, some final points here. Um, when you start looking at modern Jewish thinkers, extremist thinkers, zealots, um, who I think represent the worst kind of zealotry, one of the fascinating things that you have to keep in mind is that they seem to understand this exact point that I'm making here, right? That it's as if God is absent or weak and that's why the zealot has to step in, right? And this is actually somewhat, again, implicit in the story of Pinchas itself, right? When God is describing Pinchas's actions, I put it here at the top, it's verse 11, Pinchas ben Elzar ben Aaron Kahane heshivet chamati mi alben Israel. God says Pinchas has ameliorated my anger. Why? Bikano et kinati. Right? 
Pinchas has been zealous for my zealousness. All right, so therefore I didn't destroy them in my in my zealotry. Right, the, what the zealot does, and this is very, very important, is because if the father is weak or absent, the zealot steps into the father's place. Right, the zealot is jealous for God in place of God being able to be jealous. Right, and this to a certain extent explains the profound appeal of zealotry, because what does the zealot get to think at the end of the day, right, when there's that moment where there's just something that needs to be done, right, they get to see themselves stepping into God's shoes, right, they get to kind of see themselves as God, right, because they know what God wants, what's necessary, what's needed, and they're going to do whatever it takes, right, in many ways, the appeal of zealotry is you get to be the father, right, you get to have that fantasy of, of being right and being powerful, but you only get to have that fantasy because God is absent. God's not doing what God's supposed to do. So you can step into God's shoes. And what's fascinating is the way that modern Jewish zealots of the worst kind sort of get that, right? Which is sort of like strange and deeply problematic because it means that they're not really people of faith at the end of the day, right? When you realize how much they are motivated by God appearing weak or God appearing absent. And it's not supposed to be the position of a believing Jew, of a true position of faith, right? That God is weak and absent before we step in. But that actually sounds like a modern secular position. That's what secular Zionists said, right? We have to step in and take responsibility for the Jewish people and our power, be our own power, take our own destiny in our own hands. That's the way zealots think. They just think they're doing it in the way that they can be what God really wants. So very briefly here, Mayor Kahana, probably the leading Jewish zealot racist terrorist in, of, the, of the 20th century, he does a whole theological notion of revenge that we won't get into. Revenge is classically seen as an act of zealotry, uh, an act in which you basically punish your enemies and therefore you defend your own honor. And one of the things that Mayor Kahana notices here is that when the Jewish people are suffering, it is a, a moment in which it appears as if God is absent, right? That is when things are suffering, when things are bad, it's as if God isn't there at all. And that is the exact moment when the Jew has to be willing to take revenge, because by taking revenge, we fill that gaping hole of God's absence, right? He actually says this almost here in the Hebrew. It's like we give life back to God by killing our enemies. Now, that does not really sound like a statement of faith, right? That sounds like a roundly secular statement. That is literally what he says, and he tries to frame it in religious language. But again, he's getting at what I keep pointing out, which is when the father's not there or the father is weak, we have to step in and be the father, and we have to be as extreme as, as possible uh, in doing so. Again, but he's in doing in, in stating this, he's kind of revealing the own the own um, the emptiness of his own position. Um, ironically enough, uh, Yitzhak Ginsburg, who again is a contemporary rabbi here in Israel, also an extremist, also has defended violence and terrorism. He wrote an article praising Baruch Goldstein, who killed almost thirty uh, Palestinians in Marat Machpelah, uh, you know, thirty plus or thirty years ago. Um, he also recognizes that there's something about the act of zealotry. That again, it's like you're stepping into God's shoes, like you're forcing God's hands. Um, he says here, he notes that maybe zealotry is not always such a good thing. It can lead to dangerous consequences. Um, but he notes, he says it appears as an attempt, the act of zealotry, to force, as it were, God and his long-term plans to the eye, the here, and the now. Or there's an attempt at the act of zealotry to like force redemption. Right? We're going to step into God's shoes because God's not do, doing what God's supposed to do. We're going to be the zealots. We're going to make it happen in the here and now, uh, which again is radical in, in the almost idolatrous sense. Right? Anytime you think you're stepping into God's shoes, you're not doing something that's very Jewish at all. Right? You're essentially making a God out of yourself and, and you're acting zealously out of this fantasy. Right? And that's the challenge with zealotry is the fantasy that fuels it, a fantasy of power, but a fantasy of power that is meant to cover up powerlessness, right? Like the people who become the great fascists of the 20th century, and maybe unfortunately the fascists of the 21st century, right? They're often actually kind of physically weak and unimposing, but the whole goal is to like pretend as if they're like these mighty militant, you know, leaders or something like that, right? I'm not gonna name names, but it's it's, it's actually in their, in their weakness, we have to project on the fantasy of power, right? And that's what the zealot is always trying to do at the end of the, uh, end of the day. Um, the last point I wanna make about zealotry that I think is also of great importance for us, um, goes back to this initial point about the fact that Rabbi said, if somebody, if you're a rabbi and somebody asks you whether you can be a zealot or act zealously, you don't answer them. Now, what's fascinating is there are Jewish texts that see this as a good thing, right? What do I mean by this? Well, they see it that, uh, this is what the Chidush Arim says, the Hasidic Rebbe. Um, he says that if you have to ask a question about whether or not you should be zealous, that's a sign that your zealotry is impure, right? If you like have to like stop what you're doing, like you see the horrible thing happen. 
but you have to like stop what you're doing and go call your rabbi and have a whole discussion with him. That's a clear sign that you're not being motivated for the right holy reasons, right? Like uh, what the Chidush Arim wants to argue is that it's the fact that the zealot acts in the midst of the moment that proves the purity of their zealotry, right? They just react. They respond. It's spontaneous. Right? It's as if God's wrath, God's spirit is like filling them up. And that's what gives it its authenticity and its legitimacy. Now, it's striking when I read this again. I mean, there's a sense in which people think about zealotry this way, is that I think, you know, with the self-awareness we have today, I think most of us realize that your first reaction to something is probably not the right reaction, right? That's like, like the most important lesson you can learn is when you become an adult is your first response to seeing something that upsets you is probably not the correct response. And the goal shouldn't be like, how do I transform my anger into violence to be able to impose my will, right? Like that's, that's the lesson we all have to learn. It's called like growing up, like you're not God, right? You don't get to run things. Um, that's not the way the world can be. Um, and what's fascinating is that on a, on a sort of Jewish level, this becomes of profound importance because if the fantasy of the zealot is they get to be, step into God's shoes, right? They get to do what God wants or God needs, but God can't do because God is powerless, that you can step in, you can act zealously and feel completely legitimated, like you're on the right side of history. Um, Judaism, halacha, the Torah isn't going to allow you to do that. Um, Margaret Yamash is a commentary on Sanhedrin, basically notes that um, this permission to act zealously is not recorded in Shulchan Aruch. And he cites an opinion that says the reason that it's not recorded in the Shulchan Aruch, the classic book of Jewish law, is because you can't teach somebody to do this. And he also notes something else, that perhaps the law of zealotry doesn't even apply anymore. Perhaps it only applied at a time when there was a Sanhedrin, when there could be a death penalty. But if we have no Sanhedrin and we don't do the death penalty, the law doesn't even apply at all. And what the Margulioteyam is saying here is that we have to be open to the possibility that zealotry is never legitimate, at least not today, without a temple, without a Sanhedrin, without the death penalty, zealotry is never legitimate. And what we have to take away from this is that when the zealot acts zealously, they don't get to do it with the confidence that they are correct, that they are stepping into God's shoes, that this is the right thing, that this is necessary, that it is what God wants over and above everything else, right? The true Jewish zealot has to act without certainty. They have to act knowing they might be wrong. And as the rabbis pointed out with Pinchas, they did this horrible thing, but it happened to be the right thing at that moment. But there was like this much leeway where that could be. And he couldn't have picked up that spear with confidence knowing that it was going to end right. Right. The whole appeal of being the zealot is you get to think God, you know, wants this more than anything else in the world. But the true Jewish zealot, if they're going to pick up that spear, they have to be fully open to the possibility that they're nothing more than a murderer. No zealot wants to think that. All zealots want to have the fantasy of stepping into God's shoes. Uh, and the real challenge of true zealotry, and there may be moments that require it, is you have to take the risk. You have to take the risk, not just that you might be wrong, that you might be a murderer, that you might be engaging in an act of profound evil. If, if at that point you're still willing to go through with it and accept the consequences, then maybe you deserve to be called a true zealot. But I've never really met somebody that is you know, fundamentally willing to take that on at the end of the day, because um, what would be the point of that? Why would anybody want to take that risk? Um, but that is the challenge of zealotry. There are moments that may require it. I don't have time to look at it, but Sadok actually talks about this. He gives the example of uh, Yael and Sisera, Yael who seduced and killed Sisera, who was the sort of Philistine general oppressing the Jewish people, or um, Esther who slept with Ahasuerus to save the Jewish people. These are acts that in the moment, they don't. there's, there's no way to redeem them, right? Like they don't know what the outcome is going to be, and it may very well just be a sin. Yet Esther and Yael and even Shimshon, he goes on to describe, they do this knowing that they might be doomed, um, knowing that their actions may lead to horrific consequences, but they do it because they feel they don't have a choice, right? That, it, that they're willing to take that on, they're willing to take the risk. And that, that's the kind of zealotry that potentially can be redemptive, um, but that's the kind of zealotry that's pretty hard to find. Um, um, that is the challenge today at a time in which we don't really know who's in charge or society or men, women, or whoever. Um, when things sort of seem to be falling apart, the temptation is we're going to step in. We know what God wants. We're going to put things right. Um, but that fantasy, again, more often leads to a profanement of God's name than a sanctification of God's name. And the true zealot is the one who's willing to take the risk, um, knowing that they, you know, might be, might be wrong. So I'll stop there. I probably went a little bit over time, but I apologize for that. But we're um, happy to take a couple of questions if there's time. I think you're good to go. You have a question. Yeah, I'd like to ask the question. Um, regarding zealotry and stepping into God's shoes, 
that part, not negative or positive, but uh, I'm concerned with the following point. We have a lot of positive actions in our lives, which we, uh, which we add to our religion, ultimately are stepping into God's truth, things that God isn't doing. We want tikkun olam. We apply, we apply ourselves positively to those things. We want equality between different sexual preferences. And therefore, we go ahead, even though the, the nagging feeling always in the, um, in the back of the mind is the Torah says that this is asur, and yet we are stepping into a breach because God is powerless here. We're stepping into his shoes. It, uh, I'm curious if, if, if you read that one is a country, that, that one aspect of stepping in to the shoes of a powerless God is different than the other. So I, th I think you raise a very important point because every time we operate in the breach or outside the, sort of the boundaries of the law and modernity is, is about sort of, that's where we all are, we're all in the breach. The question is, how do we respond to that from a religious you know, perspective? That's always the challenge and the danger of it. So I'll say, one, first off I'll say is that you know, the traditional Jewish approach is that we simply reinterpret the law in a way that makes us recognize that our what we're doing is not a rupture, but a continuation of what came before. Now that, that's really hard to do, but it's the only way to do it like authentically. So that's like, you know, point, point one. If you see the interpretation of halacha as a rupture, right, then you're no longer doing halacha. And there are people who think about that. We just take psuki, we rip psukim out of the Torah to make it the Torah that we want, right? Like that's never going to, to work. Like I'm sympathetic to those who want to like say, we shouldn't read certain verses on the Yom Kippur Mincha because they describe sexual activities that we don't think are a problem um, in a way that is, you know, really upsetting to us. Um, that we shouldn't read those verses, right? Like, I'm not okay with that because I just don't think that's the Jewish response. That's point, point, point one. Uh, point two is even if we do that, like we're going to reinterpret, right? We can't do it with this sense of like certainty that we like are 100% right. And our, and our sort of the way we position Allah, the way we interpret Allah has to kind of reflect that. Um, oh. That's not an easy place to hold, um, but if we have to be able to hold positions in which we may find out that we can be wrong, right? Like we can still hold those positions. We can still reinterpret, but it can't reinterpret in such a way that we can never find our way out again, if that makes sense. Um, so I think that is, you know, that's what it means. That's the, like the true zealots. We're going to like reinterpret the law, but we have to be open to the fact that maybe we'll be proven wrong at some point in the future. Because the alternative is when the moment comes where we might be proven wrong, we just won't be open to it. We'll reject it out of hand. We'll be, you know, we'll maintain stubbornly our own, you know, wrong position. And that that's that's the real challenge. But it's an excellent point. This I never attempt to get at this, but you know, to be outside the law, to be a zealot is also like the place of chesed, right? It's the place of excess. I mean, you know, this is better than anybody, place of excess, right? And so the place in which the most redemptive good can happen is also the place where the worst transgression can happen. They happen in the same thing. That was the example that we see with Pinchas, the examples I mentioned about Esther and, and Yael and even Shimshon are all like that. Um, but the challenge is you have to be the only way to get there is by taking that risk. Um, and that's just, that's what makes it so scary. Most zealotry is cheap zealotry. Like they know they're right going into it, right? That's not what zealotry means because to act outside the law, you can't be grounded in authority. Nobody's going to tell you. I mean, if a rabbi tells you the zealotry is permitted, guess what? The rabbi is actually not a rabbi at that <laughs> moment because they've proven they don't understand the halacha properly. And if you offer a ruling that is prima facie incorrect, then you have no, then your authority is basically erased in that moment. So even if somebody tells you you can be a zealot, the very fact they tell you means they're not an authority you can ground the act, which means that it's, you still have no legitimacy, right? But to be a zealot always means to be sort of floating on air, right? Like there's no firm ground under your feet, but you feel nonetheless that you have to, you know, you have to act, right? That is the, it's you know, that it's is as the if it is an act of God uh, of which you are the vehicle. Well, you know, I, there's the thing, like it may be redemptive. It may, it, it, that can only be known after the fact. It cannot be known beforehand. Right. That, that's what I would say. Um, and, and again, the, 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 the temptation is going into it, seeing yourself in a, as, as if it's certain and it's God and it's redemptive. 
right? That's what Ginsburg points out. When Baruch Goldstein was gunning down Palestinians in Marat you know, may Goldstein's name forever be, you know, erased forever um, for the horrible things that he did. Hard not to imagine that he had a smile on his face thinking that he was God's instrument at that point doing what was absolutely necessary, right? That's what's so, you know, profoundly scary about the Zealots, right? There's a certain perversion of all that is correct um, in, in their actions. Um, and if there's one thing Judaism cannot tolerate is when humans think that they are God, right? Like that is the that is the danger that the Torah it's you know is is stands against with all of its you know all of its might. Um, but we live in a moment where that temptation is very very real. Rabbi Lehman, who I'm speaking to, I happen to know him outside, but he lives in Yerushalayim too. He knows that that temptation is like politically and religiously just in the air. Um, and it's not that there may not be moments where maybe you know, drawn to it and that it can have profound uh, need and, and and positive consequences, we have to be fully aware of what we're getting into and what and, and the dynamics of what are taking place. Perfect. Thank you so much, Rabbi Zach. Um, we are at our times, but we deeply appreciate you for such a great class today. Truly thought-provoking and uh, makes us think inward on when we try to um, play as God and when we try to justify some of our actions. Um, I'll say this, that, you know, nonviolent resistance, which can have a sense of zealotry, part of what makes it so powerful is that it is not violent, right? Nonviolence can still be power, but there's something about nonviolent resistance, which I know is at the heart of social justice that it engages in, that can be redemptive in a way, in a much more possible way than violent, you know, resistance ever, ever can be. So I think there's many ways in which zealotry can exist. Martin Luther King, you know, helps show us that they can be redemptive and powerful that don't so easily just immediately fall into these uh, dangers that are just as hard, right? Even when you're chained to a police car, there's no guarantee that's going to work out well for you or achieve what you want, right? Quite the opposite, in fact. It can mm -hmm. end far where you see this today, right? It can end far, far worse, right? But that's the risk when you're trying to change the world. Without a doubt. Thank you so much for all of you who are listening and who enjoyed today's class. We deeply appreciate Rabbi Zach and all of his great work. We will be posting a link to the sources and a link to a recording uh, later on this week. Appreciate you. Have an amazing day. Take care, everybody. Bye.